Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And daughter, do death. Hello, Phoebe. Hello, Dad. How are you? I'm good. This is uh, our 15th episode. I know, 15 weeks, which feels like a very long time. (laughs) It does. That takes us back to February, I guess, doesn't it, when we started? Yeah, that's more than a quarter of a year. It is, yeah. Yeah, it would be, yeah, because it's three months, well, nearly four months, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's about 13 weeks and a quarter, so... Yeah. uh, Yeah. Wow, yeah. It's been a busy week for true crime stories. It has. It really has. There's been lots of big stories in the news, hasn't there? Yes, they have. Yeah, I, um, I see they charged a man with the murder of Julia James, who was the uh, police mm-hmm. community support officer that they they found a couple of weeks ago after walking yes. the dog. Yes. Yeah. Did you see the reenactment that they did when with the actress walking the actual dog, Toby? Oh yeah, Toby the dog. <laughs> Same with the dog. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I did. Uh, did I see that? I don't think I did. No. They like dressed her up in like a outfit that looked like hers and was walking and she was walking the dog to try and find it but glad that they managed to kind of find someone because when we spoke last week about it they had, they had no well, clue yeah. in the news they had no clue did they yeah so, yeah well that's true yeah how they did find out I, it's amazing really how they do trap people yeah. down but um, it is yeah it really is phones and digital footprints all over the place <laughs> yes absolutely i was joking to someone the other day that um i could never kill richard because i've joked about it too many times on whatsapp so be the first place they look <laughs> yeah and it's always the uh, it's always the spouse where's the spouse isn't it not <laughs> a partner yeah that's the first not that one. I'd kill him obviously and now it's in the podcast so i really can't kill him now <laughs> <laughs> i'm not saying anything not no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway right. yeah what else have you got was, uh, from the news there was also that murder in greece um, oh, yeah. of the young girl, so she was 20, and she was tied up by robbers, and her husband was, and the, and she was strangled. But I've seen quite a lot of things, which is kind of my very first thoughts on it, saying, mm, I don't know how much robbers did this. <laughs> um, ah. Obviously, I don't know anything, and I don't want to get involved in any sort of legal disputes, but um, I think it looks a bit dodgy and as we were just saying it's always, it's always the nearest yeah. so. <laughs> so is it uh in quotes a burglary gone wrong situation potentially i think more is mm. going to come out about this over the next few days or next few weeks i would imagine but yeah that's, that's definitely one to kind of okay. keep our eyes on yeah and also i saw today that they've actually started digging up the floor of a cellar of a cafe mm-hmm. where they think um, a victim of Fred West might be buried. Yes, that's quite exciting. Feels like the wrong word, but um, exciting that they might be able to find her and bring some closure to her family. Um, if that is the case, if they do find her. And I can't believe that there's still more bodies to be found in that case, to be honest. It's incredible, isn't it? How what how that just keeps on going and going. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's just one of the most unbelievable true crime stories. I don't know if we'd ever cover it just because it's so well oh, yeah. covered. And it's just horrific. It's just apps. The whole thing is just awful and really sad. But just the kind of depths of depravity that they sank to was just yeah. absolutely unbelievable. I mean, they even killed his own daughter. 
Yeah. As one of yeah, as one of his victims. Uh... Yeah, and t- didn't he tell that he told the siblings that she'd gone, she'd run away oh, when possibly. she was dead in the yeah. back garden. She she told them that they she'd like run away to go to like a to work on a like a summer camp caravan park type thing. Oh yeah, I think. yeah. Um, and told them that she'd run off there, and but she was um dead in the back garden. Crazy. Yeah, so uh, Mary Bastholm, and she used to work at the uh, at the cafe mm-hmm. in Gloucester. Yeah, he did some work there, I think, as a handyman. Bit of a handyman, um, yeah. So, yeah, I guess we'll wait and see. I think the the statement from the family that they released was quite interesting, which kind of implied that maybe they had found something or evidence that a body had been there. I think I'd read somewhere. So, okay. I guess we will wait and see. Any others? The, I think it might have been last week now. I've lost track of time. Um, <laughs> yes. But there was a potential development in the Delphi murders case. Oh, yeah. Um, which is, it's, if you haven't listened to it, there's a podcast called Down the Hill. Um, and it's really interesting. I listened to it all in one day when I was painting our wardrobes over Christmas. Um, and it's basically these two young girls who... Um, disappeared in Delphi and I honestly couldn't tell you where Delphi is. It's Somewhere in, in Indiana. Yeah, I, I looked <laughs> it up. It's in Indiana, yeah. Um, Delphi, Indiana. And they disappeared and they found their bodies a couple of days later. Um, and the only evidence they had to go on was um, a Snapchat video that one of the girls had been taking of their walk and this guy that had approached them. Um, and he'd said something, something, something down the hill. And that's why the podcast was called Down the Hill. And that's the only audio they had of it. That's like really dig around in it to find it. Um, like you know, strip back all these layers and stuff to find it, and that's pretty much kind of everything they had. And they've, um, it's and they had no leads at all, um, and it's gone cold, pretty much immediately because they just had nothing. Um, but they, no one's been arrested, and her sister's quite vocal on Twitter, and she keeps saying, you know, nothing is concrete yet, but um, there is potentially somebody of interest that they're trying to speak to. So it'd be great again for the family if they kind of got some sort of closure in that as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, this week's story I have for you, Phoebe, mm-hmm. it's about a man called Peter Lundin. Okay. I don't know if you've heard of him. I don't think I have. <laughs> He's part Danish, part American. Okay. Well, at least the story is part Danish, part American, which is kind of breaking our sort of um, self-imposed rule about only talking about European murders. But uh, that's okay because um, Order of the Solar Temple there in Canada for a little bit of that. Yeah, so. that's true. Yeah, yes, there's a bit <laughs> of Canada, bit of Canada, bit of United States, and a bit of Denmark in this this story. Well, there you go. The story of Peter Lundin starts in North America in 1950 when Ole Lundin and his brother, who had previously emigrated from Denmark to Canada, decided to move to the United States to join the US Army. Now, the reason that they did that was because if they had joined the Canadian Army, they would have lost their Danish citizenship, which they were keen to keep. But by joining the US Army, they were able to keep their Danish citizenship. Andy? I have no idea how long these two brothers had been in 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 Canada. But in 1950, they joined the US Army. Now, the brother, I don't have his name, I'm afraid, uh, was sent to Korea after training. 
And sadly, while he was there, he contracted a virus and died. <gasps> oh, I mean, no. Lord knows there's enough of that going on at the moment. But, uh... Isn't there? <laughs> so it does happen, folks. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ole, however, was sent to Europe for his posting to okay. Germany, in actual fact, which is, uh, yeah, pretty close to Denmark. In fact, Denmark. Yeah, not far. Yeah. Comes off the top of Germany. So while he was serving in Germany, he met a girl called Anna Schaffner. They courted and they married. And then after he's discharged from the army, they settled back in Denmark. Lovely. Okay. Ole started as a bricklayer back in his home country, and he even built their own house in a small nice. coastal town called Solrodstrand, which is located on the eastern side of the island of Zealand, which is the island that Copenhagen is is part of. Um, oh, and New Zealand comes from. Y- yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, I didn't even think there was New an York old comes from you. Yeah. yeah. Anything that's got a new on the front yeah. is probably... Yeah, that's true. Anything that's got a new on the front is probably a, an old. original. An original, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Solrod Strand is, is on the island of Zealand. It's slightly southwest of Copenhagen. So it was here on the 15th of February 1972 that Peter Kenneth Bostrom Lundin was born. Okay. 1972. So he's, he's okay. a. Yeah. His early childhood was unremarkable. No reports of anything happening that might have influenced his future life. No violent abuse or bangs to the head or anything like that. Oh, good. <laughs> good to hear. When, well, well, we'll come on in a moment to some perhaps some pointers that, that mm. may have affected his early life, but uh, there's nothing specific mentioned. I'll tell you what, ever since I've been to the park with Toby, ever since we did the... Um... Alexander Pushushkin episode. Yeah, yeah. I'm really worried about him being on the swing. And uh, we were on the other day, underneath it is like solid metal. I was like, oh my God, if that hit you really? in the head, it would really hurt you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, in 1979, so when Peter was about seven ish, Ole, his father, developed a health problem which prevented him from continuing work as a bricklayer. He actually suffered okay. a blood clot somewhere which incapacitated him. As a family, they struggled on. As far as I can see, there are no other brothers or sisters. He, Peter was an only child. They, they struggled on, but eventually their financial troubles overwhelmed them and they had to give up their house as they could no longer pay for the bills or the mortgage. Oh. Then in 1981, so they'd been struggling on for a couple of years, the family decided to emigrate back to the United States. Okay. Where... Ole had been in the army, which was like. Did they have some sort of like claim to citizenship or something because he'd been in the army? No, nah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they moved to Florida where Ole and Anna got a job running a motel. Then in 1984, when Peter was 12, they moved to a place called Maggie Valley in North Carolina. Okay. It's a very rural town near the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is home to, amongst other things, black bears. Oh. <laughs> it's in the west of the state of North Carolina, not far from the border with Tennessee. And I've looked it up on the map, and it looks like a really lovely place. Nice. I wouldn't mind, it sounds uh, nice. Yeah, I wouldn't mind uh, having a visit there one day if ever we're 
fortunate enough to, Let's do it. to go back I'd to love to go back to, I'd love to go to Tennessee. I really want to go to Dollywood. Yeah, it's really I'll high up my list of places to go. <laughs> I really want to go to Dollywood. Anyway, it is here, shortly after arriving in Maggie Valley, that uh, the social services took Peter away from the family because okay. the mother was being investigated on suspicion of child neglect and abuse. Oh, dear. Things were not going well in the Lundin household, and Ole decided to leave Anna, and he took Peter with him, and they moved all the way over to Los Angeles. It's quite a long way. It is a long way. Then they moved all the way back to New York. (laughs) Right. Then to Boston. (laughs) Again, a long way. Not quite so far. far. (laughs) Staying just a, a few weeks in each place. Because uh, they couldn't find work or couldn't find somewhere to live or for whatever reason, they just didn't settle anywhere. Mm-hmm. So eventually they went back to Florida, to Miami. Okay. And here Ole found work as a bricklayer again. So presumably whatever health condition he was having with his mm. blood clot and whatever is no longer, no oh, longer a good. problem. Yeah. And he found them a, a, an apartment for them to live in. So this is in Miami. Um, by now, Peter is 14 and attending school in that city. Okay. Uh, he actually had a few evening jobs and weekend jobs, including waiting at a restaurant, things like that. So after a while, Ole and Anna decided to try things again. Now, they still had the house in Maggie Valley, but Anna moved from North Carolina where she'd been all through this this time, to join mm. her husband and son down in Miami. So they're living all together in Miami. And on Peter's 16th birthday in February 1988, he left school and started working with his dad as a bricklayer. <laughs> so he now had some money coming in. He had some money of his own. Um but he also started getting involved with the wrong crowd. He got involved with the drugs, marijuana, cocaine, that sort of thing. Okay. Well, for whatever reason, the family moved again, this time back to the house in Maggie Valley, North Carolina. Okay. Now, Peter then went back to school to carry on his education. But while he was at school, he was selling cannabis to his classmates. <laughs> oh, Peter. <laughs> I think we can tell they're they're a bit of a muddle, this family. The mother's had problems with neglect of her child. The father's travelling all over the country with his son. The son doesn't know where he is. Uh, He left school and he's now gone back to school, getting involved with drugs and things. Yeah, it's not the foundations of a stable childhood, really. No, no. So things are going a little bit uh, bit wobbly. (laughs) Anyway, eventually Peter graduates. And he goes back into construction work. But as well as a builder, he's starting to think of himself as a musician and a poet. And you'll see from pictures of him that he's grown his hair really long. Okay. And he's a bit sort of um, bohemian, I suppose, in that respect. I guess it was the 80s. (laughs) Yeah, late 80s. Yeah, that's true. But generally, the family are very dysfunctional. Peter is still dealing drugs. Ole and Peter, so father and son, often got drunk together and both became violent towards Anna, who herself was, according to later testimony, an alcoholic. 
my goodness. <laughs> so the police have been called by neighbours on several occasions, but seemingly no action was ever taken. Oh, it sounds very chaotic. <laughs> In the spring of 1991, when Peter must have been around yeah, 19, Anna and Ole decide to separate again. So Ole and Peter take Anna to Atlanta Airport on April the 2nd. Okay. And she apparently catches a plane to Germany where she plans to stay with family while she settles back down in her home country. Five days later, however, she returns back (laughs) to the house in Maggie Valley in North Carolina. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. But things didn't go very well. She started drinking and becoming aggressive herself. And one particular night, she approached Peter with a pair of scissors, threatening to cut his really long hair. Oh, no. Now, Peter, he may have been high or drunk or something. He flew into a rage. Um, one account is that he pushed her down the stairs, but all accounts are that he then choked her to death. I think we have a sense now that Peter and Ole were quite close with all their travelling around together, getting drunk together, working Mm. in the same industry, whether they work together or not, I don't know. Uh, But they had a pretty good dad and son relationship. Now, this was not interrupted by the fact that Peter has just (laughs) killed his mother or, you know, Ole's wife. But Ole went as far as to help Peter dispose of Anna's body. They bundled her up into a car and cleaned up the scene. Then they drove her body all the way from western North Carolina right out to the Atlantic coast. Okay. To Cape Hatteras, which, if you look at a map, it's this, it's this thin line of islands off the North Carolina coast, which are sort of strung together by a road. Oh, okay. Um Looks quite, looks quite nice. Very sandy. I've seen that Lots, in pictures. Yeah, I think it's quite quite a famous place, Cape Hatteras. Lots of sandy beaches, popular with surfers. And this is how Peter knew about it, because he used to go out there surfing. Uh, so it was here that they buried her body in the sandy beach, wrapped in a blanket and covered in black plastic bags, bound with tape and rope. Okay. So there she was, buried in the sand. Now, Peter and Ole went on the move again. This time they fled the US and moved across the border to Canada. Uh, Okay. Now, on November the 1st, 1991, so about seven months later, walkers along the sandy beach near the Outer Banks lighthouse reported finding a woman's body which had washed up on the shore. So presumably, although it was buried in the sand, yeah. storms, probably. wind, yeah. rain, high tides, whatever. The sand's probably not a great place to get rid of a body. No, you'd have to be really, really deep, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> so one, one way or another, it had uh, the, the body had washed out to sea and then sort of washed back inland again. I don't suppose there was much left of it if it was already seven months old and been out to sea and been thrown around in the sea a bit. That's that's true. But somehow, and again, I can't find anywhere 
where it says how, but they just they, they figured out that it was uh, that it was Anna Lundin, mm-hmm. um, and they tried to track down Peter and Ole, and of course they couldn't find them because they were in effect on the run. And it wasn't until the sixth of June, nineteen ninety-two, that police actually caught up with them, and they oh, okay. found them in a hotel room in Toronto where they were arrested and taken back to Dare County in uh, North Carolina, where they both went on trial. The trial actually started in 1993. And in July of that year, at the end of the trial, Peter, who is now 21, pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to the maximum 20 years imprisonment. Now, it's interesting that he admitted to manslaughter uh, rather than, well, maybe they wanted to charge him with murder. But uh, the book that, that we were talking about last week, the one you gave me, uh, yeah. Murder, the Biography, there's, there's quite a lot in there. I don't know how far through the book you've got. Not very far. <laughs> but um, I, mean, no, I haven't got hugely far either. But I'm regretting a... not getting the Kindle edition, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um but there's quite a, a lot of discussion about the definition of murder as a as a crime. I think I've read that bit. That was right in the beginning, isn't it? Yeah, it is right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. and 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 the difference and, the, and how they differentiate or how the law differentiates between murder and manslaughter. Yes, um, and it's still quite a fine line today. Mm. Was he saying about um, murder was like cold blooded? but manslaughter was hot-blooded well, in the yeah. French translation of it. And so we were say, like a cold-blooded killer compared to like a fit of rage. Yeah, that, that's part of it. Because there's quite a lot dedicated to to the situation when people get killed during duels of the sort oh, of okay. 18th, 19th century. Um, and whether or not people that actually killed someone during a duel would be... Res- guilty of murder or manslaughter or, or whatever and yeah that's that's true actually it does come into the hot blooded thing so if it's done at the spare of the moment in a hot blooded moment then yeah oh, it's potentially manslaughter because it was not premeditated but then was it saying that premeditation is only one piece of it it's more intention than premeditation and even if in that last split second you intended yeah. to do something then it's murder not yeah. yeah, which maybe <laughs> drives the coach and horses, as it were, <laughs> through the yeah. the dueling, dueling. Yeah, uh, that's true. Thing, but yeah, there's all sorts of ways in which the law has been interpreted um, to define murder over the years. I th- and I was like, I thought it was really interesting um, at the beginning when it was saying that basically people had a, an amount attached to them, and if you yeah. killed them, you just had to give that money to their family, and that was it. Yeah. And just did fine. <laughs> like that was okay. Yeah. Then it went to the other extreme where murder was unquestionably um, the death sentence. Sen- the death sentence, yeah. yeah. Together with lesser crimes like stealing bread or breaking a window or yeah. something like that. <laughs> it's been through a lot of change. The the law on murder, and I dare say that it will evolve again as time mm. moves on. So, getting back to the story, Peter Lundin pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to the maximum of 20 years imprisonment in North Carolina. His father was sentenced to two years as an accomplice to murder. 
then both were ordered to be deported at the end of their sentences. Ah, okay. All right. In 1994, so just a year later, Mm. a Danish television station was putting together a programme called The American Dream, (laughs) where it was following the lives of young people who had moved across the Atlantic to live in in the United States to find out how, how their lives had developed. A researcher for the program discovered the story of this young man who had been incarcerated for murder of his mother. <laughs> the real American dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they arranged to interview him. Uh, okay. And the prison authorities agreed, as they quite often do with interview requests with inmates. I mean, for example, look at I Am A Killer, for example. Yeah, that's true, actually, yeah. Um, oh, my God, we should try and talk to somebody. Should we, we should get someone on. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that could be interesting. <laughs> During the actual recording of the interview from jail, and, and there's this, I haven't found an actual video of it, but there's stills from it, and he's just sitting there, and there's a police, or, or there's a prison officer sort of sitting in the background behind him in this room. Yeah. During the actual recorded interview, he actually paints half of his face black. Okay. And this is to symbolise the good and the evil in him. Oh, wow, okay. So so he starts off without just plain face, and then by the end of it, half of his face is painted black. Now, the interview had a couple of unexpected consequences, one of which was a Swedish psychiatrist called Professor Sten Lavender applied the psychopathy checklist to what he observed while watching the recording of the interview. Now, the psychopathy checklist is a device used to assess people for psychopathic tendencies, and it's scored in a range between 0 and 40. Uh, In the US, a score of 30 is the threshold to determine if someone is psychopathic or not. Okay. Whereas in the UK, it's 25. Okay, so we're less tolerant. We're less tolerant, yeah. <laughs> It'd be interesting to do, to find out if we're psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. That could be a bonus episode <laughs> if we get Patreon. <laughs> okay. Come to find out if we're psychopaths. Anyway, in this case, Professor Lavender awarded Peter Lundin 39 points out of Wow, okay. <laughs> based on the behaviours that he observed. Now, the second consequence was that Peter received quite a lot of what you might refer to as fan mail. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> From Danish women who had seen the interview. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. And in 1996, he actually married one of them. No way. Her name was Tina. Now, what I didn't mention at the start of this podcast is that it's a two-parter. So we'll come back to Tina when uh, when we look at part two next week. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, just just bear in mind that in 1996 he married Tina. Now by that time, Ole had actually finished his time in jail. He did his two years, and he was deported back to Denmark. And also around about this time, Peter won an appeal, and he had his sentence reduced from 20 to 15 years. Wow, okay. Which he then went on to serve at the newly opened Brown Creek Correctional Institution, 
which is at 248 Prison Camp Road, Polkton, North Carolina. <laughs> what a great address. Prison Camp Road, yeah. <laughs> wonder who lives at 247 Prison Camp Yeah. <laughs> now, we're in the, towards the end of the 1990s now, and North Carolina is rapidly running out of prison capacity. Oh. <laughs> and this is reported as being mostly due to wife abuse and murder allegedly coming from a U.S. Army base at Fort Bragg. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got all these Army guys that are beating up and killing their wives and they're running out of um, of prison space in North Carolina. Um, So North Carolina made a policy whereby anybody who had been sentenced after a certain date... I don't know what that date is, but it must have been before Peter Lundin was sentenced. Okay. So anybody that was sentenced after a certain date would be released after serving just half of their time. What? So <laughs> his, his, his sentence went from 20 years to 15 years, and now that's been slashed in half. So presumably... Oh, my goodness. Seven, seven and a half, and a half yeah. years. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yep. Like... Just because they haven't got capacity for it doesn't mean that those people shouldn't be in prison. Yeah, bearing in mind he scored 39 out of 40 yeah. out on this. <laughs> and he killed his mum. Like, he, yeah. he didn't just run over somebody. He, like, full-on killed her. Yeah, yeah. I wonder who else they let go. <laughs> As a result, Peter Lundin was released from prison and immediately deported back to Denmark, arriving in Copenhagen on the 4th of June, 1999. Wow. Ready to meet his wife, I guess. <laughs> Ready to meet his wife, yeah. So, yeah, we'll we'll pick up there in part two. Okay. Basically, a bit of a spoiler, he does go and live with his wife. Okay, that's good. Uh, but we'll Do they find... live happily ever after? Well, I'm not going to say too much. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> in the next part of this, we'll find out how Peter's return to Denmark led to the disappearance of a prostitute and her two young sons. So the story gets even more interesting. Now he's back in Denmark. There you go. Yeah. That was great. Um, I'm excited to hear part two. (laughs) It's quite a good story, yeah? Yeah. I can't believe they just halved his prison sentence just because there wasn't enough room for these people. Amazing, isn't it? And there was a policy that they wouldn't, um, accommodate prisoners across state borders so they couldn't just move okay. prisoners from North Carolina to South Carolina or Virginia or Tennessee or somewhere. Um, a prisoner is a prisoner like in that state. Ramped at the death penalty and just be like, actually, you're <laughs> murdered, we'll just kill you. <laughs> that'll, that'll free up some room. <laughs> yeah, they'd have had to have changed his. Um... Yeah, but I mean, like, if they could have got rid of some other people, it would have left room for him, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, there you go. He was. He was young. He admitted manslaughter. He played. He did plead guilty to manslaughter. <laughs> they probably offered it him as like a plea deal, didn't they? Maybe. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot more to this story under the covers. Mm, uh, there always is, isn't there? Yeah. So. Yeah, cool. But well, uh, yeah, next time we'll find out what happens to Peter Lundin on his return to Denmark yes. and where he is now. <laughs> dun dun dun. I don't think it'd be too much of a spoiler to say that uh, he's still alive. Okay. Yeah, I guess he's not that old, is he? 49? 